0: This is Living Catholic with Father Don Wolf. Living Catholic is a fresh look at issues confronting each of us today. This show deals with Living Catholic, what that means for Catholics, as well as the impact on the rest of society. You certainly don't have to be Catholic to enjoy this show. And now, your host, Father Don Wolf. Welcome, Oklahoma, to Living Catholic. I'm Father Don Wolf, pastor of Sacred Heart Parish and rector of the Shrine of Blessed Stanley Rother. With the beginning of the new year, it's always a time to cast our eyes, our gaze back over the uh, things that have happened in the previous year and to try to stake out where we're going in the year to come. I'm old enough now to look around at the recent trends and really marvel at how things are. It doesn't make you me unique, it's just part of the age I've entered. Just the other day, one of my sisters was talking about her granddaughter who'd flown out over the holidays to visit her other set of grandparents in Florida. My sister had gone over to their house as they left to the airport. Her granddaughter came downstairs dressed in what seemed like a pair of pajamas and a set of bathroom slippers. If she'd been six years old, it might have been all right, but she's 17. My sister couldn't believe it. It took my other sister, 10 years younger, to remind her that that's how the kids her age dress, and that's how it is these days. She still can't get over it. Of course, there's nothing much new about that, about not getting over things. I remember many years ago, probably 30 now, when the comedian David Brenner was on Johnny Carson telling jokes about the adventures of flying in his time. That was when the explosion of flying by the average person was taking place. It had become something other than the option for travel by the elite Flying had become the gathering place of the masses. And Brenner, talking about all of this and marveling at all the changes involved, said that he felt like when he arrived at the airport that he needed to go into the bathroom and take some of his clothes off to better fit in with the other folks who were flying. The whole studio laughed, as did Johnny Carson. Now, hardly anybody would know what he was talking about. Times change. Things change. People change. All it takes is being around long enough And you notice these things. And in noticing them, you talk about them. I'm not alone, of course. I look out over the concourse of my life and notice changes everywhere. One of the things that has come to me lately is to notice how there are never any kids in the neighborhoods that I drive through. Just the other day, I saw three boys on their bikes circled up on a sidewalk as I was driving through a subdivision. There's just a couple of kids looking at the passing traffic and talking to each other. Obviously, they were on their way somewhere. But when I drove past them, I realized it had been years since I'd seen a little group like theirs. What used to be everywhere and completely normal is now worthy of stopping to take a picture. Our neighbors have become emptied of children. At least they've been emptied of those people who spend any time outdoors. It's also true of all things funerals. When I was a kid, I went to funerals all the time. And when I was there, I was there with a large passel of my cousin's. Who are all more or less the same age as I. It's when we saw each other. First, second, third cousins. No longer. Oh, I still see my cousins at funerals, but there are no kids at funerals. Ever. We do live longer than before, and that accounts for some of the absence. Kids are older when their loved ones die, but that doesn't account for all the absence. There are just fewer kids. And we don't expect, we don't expect them to be there. So they're not. In fact, our whole society is becoming a kid-free zone. Just recently, I was looking at a number of home movies that had been posted on YouTube. They were taken in Iowa about 60 years ago, and mostly they're scenes from harvest time there. But apart from the tractors in the fields and the crowds on the sidewalks during parades, you notice that there are children in these movies everywhere. The boys are crawling around and tussling with each other. The girls are trying to stand up the right way and are fussing with each other and with the younger kids. And none of the adults seem to worry about them at all. Those kids, they're everywhere and they're invisible to all of the other people there. That's what seems to be so remarkable. It's like everybody expects them to be there, not like today. I say all of this not to disclose my age or my state in life, but to invite us all to think about the changes we know are happening all around us. And they're not facile changes in style or points of view. Rather, they're changes in our fundamental way of getting along in the world as human beings. We're different than we used to be and we live our lives in ways different than in time gone by. It's important for us to notice that things do change and it's important to begin thinking about what those changes might mean to us. And I mean, it's a significant aspect of what it means for us to be faithful catholics we ought to notice when changes happen both because the surface things we notice are the outworking of deep fundamental changes in our world and because we're challenged to live in this world of ours in the here and now changes are what it means to live if our faith is just a living is is a living faith and not just a fossil it will incorporate the changes certainly it will at least acknowledge them In the novel, The Lord of the World, set a hundred years in the future from when it was written, it was written in 1895, and so it was set in 1995, the author wanted to present the pope as head of the church that was seeking to stabilize itself in a changing world. And in doing so, this fictional pope set himself in Rome, in which all transportation was by horse and buggy, and all documentation was by quill pen on parchment. Even in 1895, this was kind of a joke about not being able to address change. On a more contemporary and historical note, when Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt met together at the Acadian Conference on board a Royal Navy cruiser just before the U.S. entry into the Second World War, they wanted to issue a joint statement. Roosevelt asked that the statement be reviewed by his staff. But he was told that they could only write it out longhand since there were no typewriters aboard Royal Navy vessels. Even Churchill was surprised. When asked how such a thing could come to pass, he was told the obvious. It wasn't the tradition of the Royal Navy to have typewriters on board. Churchill's wrath was unleashed. Go online and find out his response, which I can't repeat here. All living organizations have to at least notice the changes happening around them. In our time, we're becoming more and more aware of the basic changes in the content of our culture. It's commonplace to note that we no longer live in the age of faith in the shadows of Christendom, but rather in the time in which the presumptions of faith in Jesus are held in contempt. In previous ages, faith in Jesus could be presumed. After that, it was regarded with skepticism Now, it's commonly derided as false. We're not simply at the time when people challenge what we believe. We're at the time in which people are openly disgusted at what we believe. Oh, not everyone. In the age of faith, not everyone believed either. And in the age of skepticism, there were plenty of people who clung to the beliefs of their parents and ridiculed any criticism or doubt as foolish and inconsequential. But in every age, there is the spirit of the age that determines its thrust, not the outliers or the few or the silent. And we live in the age of disgust at the faith. And let me be clear, this is not disgust in terms of revulsion or contempt. It's, it's disgust in the sense that belief is both false at its core and untenable in its existence. I mean, we think of belief— or belief is thought of in our time, as something like slavery in the mind of the contemporary world. Slavery has existed in virtually every culture during almost all of human history. It's been justified in almost every system of government and religion, and it was eradicated in our culture only after a ghastly civil war. Nobody thinks of slavery as having any legitimacy or no matter who proposes it or who makes a case for it anymore. It arouses disgust in the soul of anyone in our culture who would discuss it in even the most dispassionate way. It's beyond the pale of human behavior in our current estimation of things. Imagine what would happen if you were at a party and somebody said something like, Well, those people raising cotton in Georgia in 1792, they had a point about the cost of labor. Not only when the conversation come to a halt, everybody would freeze. You might as well be talking about, I don't know, embalming or cannibalism or mucus. We live in an age of disgust just like that when it comes to talking about the faith. Now, of course, we also live at a time in which slavery is practiced all over the world. While not mentioned much publicly, you can find references to slave markets in Africa, India, and Asia. People have estimated that there are currently in our world, if you count them, more slaves that exist now than have ever existed at one time before in the history of the world. And these include people who are locked into slavery in our own society. The sense of disgust is real, and no one will defend the practice, but it still exists in it in the most robust form. And my point is that the age of disgust is, uh, is, is real, even though not everybody shares it, but it is the spirit of the age. The age of disgust is as real as the exceptions to it, but it is real all the same. It's important to understand this when we hear the avatars of our society talking about the future of things or the pathway to our political agreements. They're operating out of the near impossibility of believing in the certainty of the gospel or the work of God in the world. At the highest reaches of academia and in the most exalted places in business and government, practical faith— is simply not an option. And certainly, the preservation of moral practice because of a living faith is nearly impossible to find. Much less is it defended. Over and over again, I've heard national voices deride those who have moral positions that come from their faith. It may be startling when you first hear it, but the condemnation is so common, the ones who make it see no need to defend their position or explain their point of view. They just know that anyone who, for example, regards sex as something other than transactional or regards a surprise pregnancy as a moral commitment or who identifies perplexing sexual geographies as a problem to be addressed rather than a practice to be supported— that person is regarded, uh, that person whose opinions, that person who holds those opinions is considered not worthy even of consideration. And it's not an accident that all of these examples peek out from the sexual realm because there's nothing more correlative to belief than sexual sexual behavior, but the same sense of unbelief. Attaches to bodily integrity, the sense of personal responsibility in corporate behavior, or the respect to do another because of their value as an individual. And the whole gamut of behaviors most designated as obsolete in our time. Look at the statues that we're unwilling to tolerate anymore. Even statues of Abraham Lincoln have been torn down because his sense of trying to do what was possible inside of the murderous circumstances of his time, his efforts don't comport with the disgust others of our time have about what he believed or what he wanted. The great emancipator has now been pushed to the trash can because he's not sufficiently credible to those whose disgust at what he believed and said has no bounds. It's not only on TV or in university courses either. Like every age, the fundaments of the age show themselves all over our place and time. It's the blocking element at work in the processes of our age. You may have found it in terms of the feeling of breakdown or impedance in what used to work well. It seems we used to have a consensus concerning the values of society or the function of the family or the operation of the military, but that that consensus has passed. It feels like nothing works like it used to. It's something like seeing a drain on the street after a quick thunderstorm. The water's running deep, but it's been covered over with leaves or trash so the water can't drain away. Rather than a flu a smooth flowing rivulet of water near the curbs, there's a big lake in the middle of the street. Things just don't work. Or a more relevant image is that the kind of mess that we get into when we're deboarding a plane. You know, there's always somebody who's gathering his clothes, reaching for his suitcase, stuffing everything in his pockets, and talking to his partner, all the while he's standing in the aisle, completely unaware that he's keeping another hundred people behind him from being able to leave. And the holdup becomes more than just this one rude person. Because the airlines want people to carry their own baggage and keep track of their own belongings and thus make all of the arrangements of moving people more inefficient. They do this while keeping the same connection times, hurrying people in the terminals and making the entire travel experience worse for everyone. What used to be simple and understood, that your baggage was handled and taken care of, is now overturned. What used to be easy has now become harder. And what used to flow with ease has now become clotted. That's our age. In previous years, the response to this sense of disruption and dissipation was to call attention to its dissonance. If you have a piano string that's gone flat or it's broken, it doesn't take long to notice. In fact, if the string has gone out of tune, it makes everything you play sound off, if not awful. Ditching the fundaments of belief or making fun of those who are faithful to Christ produces the same clanging noise. Society has been built on Christian belief. Throwing it away or discarding its importance produces the same cacophony. In the past, the great authors would just point at what was produced at the gaps in practice or the cost of the changes and remind people of the price of unbelief. There are many examples of those who have done that. G.K. Chesterton, responding to the murders of the Russian Revolution and the establishment of the Gulag, as well as all of the enthusiasm with which both of these things were embraced in English society, said that, quote, the world is full of Christian values gone mad, unquote. He simply pointed out that unless the virtues are tuned, they produce noise, not music. And there's Frank Sheed's Theology and Sanity whose focus was that all minds search for the transcendent, and any mind ignorant of the truth of this transcendence stumbles into incoherence and madness. He only had to point to the brief unpleasantness of the world wars, the revolutions, and inhumanity between 1914 to 1945 to make his case. And there's C.S. Lewis, who could lampoon the government, science, academia, and journalism when they have no more foundation than what people want for right now. And he did all this in one novel. It's called That Hideous Strength. Each author was trying to point out to the great clotting of the arteries of belief and practice and the price we pay once the clouds of the age of disgust condense. But they were speaking from a time in which you could remember the clear view. They had the advantage of appealing to what people could remember or at least what they could appreciate. We no longer have that advantage. Our response in our age has to be something much different than theirs. Reading them and learning from them is, is vital, but they're not touching our challenges. They're talking about remodeling. What we have to do is relay the foundations and build anew. I like what the French philosopher Rémy Brague wrote back in in the 1990s. He said, quote, Faith produces its effect only so long as it remains faith and not calculation. We owe European civilization to, to people who believed in Christ, not to people who believed in Christianity, unquote. His point is central. When we look at where we are, we have to look at the core of what the life of belief in Christ is. The civilization built upon the life of belief is gone and it's not coming back. At least it's not coming back as we remember or even as we want. That's what Brag means by faith. The life of faith is the life built on faith in the proclamation of Jesus and the promise of reconciling love, not on the products of belief or the list of things people ought to do if they want decent lives or a prosperous future. The life of belief is a life given over to Christ. That's the beginning. Because we live in Oklahoma, we also have to include the truth that there is no fullness of faith without the church. The core of belief in Christ is a belief that makes us brothers and sisters in faith. Belief is not a personal instantiation of an option available to me. One of the marks of our age, after all, is the fetish we place on personal choice. We hold on to this even when we know that that personal choice to be empty, for there's nothing more empty than choice for its own sake. As David Bentley Hart said, we are free, but not merely because we can choose, but only when we have chosen well. It is true when we choose Christ as well. To believe is to belong, and the belonging is in the church. Now, there are changes ahead of us. This was encapsulated in the little booklet all the priests of the archdiocese were given to read several years ago. It was called From Christendom to the Apostolic Age, and it describes the journey that we're on now. During Christendom, when the spirit of the age was the spirit of belief, all we had to do was invite people into the age, into what was normal and reasonable, that things have changed since then. To do such a thing now is to invite everyone to share the disgust for what we hold dear. Most of the changes we notice are just these, and they'll accumulate and build on one another. We haven't even begun to see the changes that are headed our way. If you need a marker, just keep the number 64 million in your head. That's the number of children whose lives were ended by abortion in the 49 years that it was unrestricted in the U.S. The absence of those millions— and the yawn that accompanied it from just about every person in position of responsibility, as well as the grisly impact that the disappearing of millions of souls has on people, is the first marker of our society. And as we now see, they are only the first down payment of what our society will become. The only answer is in Christ. The letter of John assures us that God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. The first and final logic of life is of self-displacing, reconciling love. On this truth, the world was built. It will be only when we embody this truth in our lives that we encounter all life has to offer us and what will unlock the prosperity of our society among us. When we have encountered this love, then we will build the society and its structures to express it and to make it real among us. It means we may have to end the things we're used to and begin anew. It may mean we have to alter what's familiar to do something different than now. It may mean that we have to dig down to the foundations of what we're doing and recover what has passed away. But whatever we do, we will do because we have encountered the truth of Christ and the reality of the gospel in our lives. It is the age in which we have to return to the first truth, and that is the truth of Christ among us we can take a lesson from what we have learned from child development and child health. In the child care factories we're familiar with in our age, both here at home as well as in other parts of the world, we've discovered what seems to be the most essential to the integral health and prospering of a baby. And that's the relationship of that child to its parents, especially its mother. All of the comfort and protection and vaccination and stimulation and care given to a child in whatever amount is as if for nothing if the child is not the product of a living, certain, and engaged relationship with one who loves her or him. The relationship is what counts beyond all other things, and so it will be with us. First there is the relationship with Christ, and then there is the relationship, and then there is the life we have from this encounter that we share with one another. That is what will make our world. This relationship will change the world. The cultural critic and prophet René Girard has pointed out that Christianity is the only religion that predicts its own failure. What he means is that the Bible ends with the description of how everything goes wrong as the fullness of the message of Christ is revealed. As the world comes closest to Christ, things fall apart. Of course, he also mentions that this truth is acted out in every age, not just in our own. No age survives without change and dissolution. Our our age is one in which the change will be for the better. The more we look around and see what is unlike ages past, the more we will note that it is the prelude for the offer to come closer to Christ. This is the same offer our parents had, the offer they chose. It's what lies ahead for us. Back in just a moment. Welcome back to our final segment, Faith in Verse. We have a poem today called Upon the Death of His Beloved. I can feel her presence, he said of her, gone now these months. She is still here, I know. She didn't just go and disappear as the mist of an autumn morning. And because she's still with me now, I'll allow even the barest possibility that life is more than we had thought. I'd bargained and bought the whole of life was just here. But how foolish could I have been? I look, and again, the presence of this love we share does not vanish. I have found it does not even fade. Her love is light, not shade, and I know it. How much more it must be so... To know there might be one who loves us fully. If she could love me as intensely as this, can I dismiss the eternal and the divine? As of now, I say no, not possible. And so, my beloved has brought me love. That's upon the death of his beloved. In the weeks to come, I hope that you can continue to join us here in Living Catholic as we strive to explain the and to invite into this fullness of encounter with Christ. Living Catholic is a production of Oklahoma Catholic Radio. To learn more, visit OKCR.org.